This week, Stephen Hawking, one of the, what some would say is one of the smartest men who ever lived, died. Uh, I don't know how much you know about him. I'm going to quote him a couple of times today, but uh, I start with him today because he may well be the epitome of what the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes has in mind as he talks about chasing meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. Stephen Hawking, as you may or may not know, was born in England uh, during roughly the time of World War II. By the time he was 25, he was diagnosed with ALS. The doctors at the time said that he was in his doctoral studies at the time, and the doctors said that there was no way that he would live long enough to graduate. They gave him one to two years max. And so for the next 55 years, Stephen Hawking lived his life in the shadow of death. He knew that it was out there. He knew that sooner or later he would succumb to the disease that ravaged his body. But he continued to live, and he continued to chase meaning and fulfillment in his life. That takes me to the book of Psalm, Psalm 23 to be exact. You could turn there, but you probably don't need to. Probably one of the most famous texts in all of Scripture. People who are not even Christian or don't believe the Bible know something of Psalm 23 and the beautiful poetry and all that is there. But those of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ know that there's much more to it than just pretty words and great poetry. I would suggest that in that famous psalm, Psalm 23, there is a passage that is largely overlooked. It's, it's the one that we skirt past typically. Because in that passage, the psalmist says, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I'm going to stop there. I'll come back to that at the end of the message. But uh, I, I want to let that phrase sink into us. David is king of Israel. Probably, in my personal opinion, it's, that psalm is written at the end of his life as he reflects backward over his life. And David's life, whatever else you want to say about it, was marked with death and the awareness of it inside his own personal family as a king and then also as a warrior. David was familiar with death. And so that little phrase stuck in the middle of that psalm, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, pushes us to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So if you'll take your Bibles and go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we, we step into this. It's a continuing part of what we've been talking about. And as we have examined the writer Ecclesiastes, I've come to call him the preacher most of the time in this discussion. But uh, he is grappling with his own mortality, but not just his own, but those of death that is common to all men. That shadow of death that if Solomon was in fact the one that wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, the shadow of death that his father penned in Psalm 23 rises to the surface, it bubbles to the surface, and what we find then in focus for today's text at least is that when we go through our own chase for meaning and fulfillment, we always do it in the shadow of death. Let me just read these verses. We're going to go all the way through verse 12, so the reading is a little lengthy. For that, I apologize, but uh, we need to understand what he's saying. Chapter 9, verse 1, a book of Ecclesiastes, but all this I laid to heart, examining it at all, 
how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Let me just stop for a second and say that there are some who would say that this passage that we're in today is probably the most pessimistic passage of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So if you haven't been depressed yet in this series, take heart. You have today before you still. Verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead." But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going." Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Welcome back to the chase. And as we have just read through that, the the shadow of death looms over this text. The, The writer of Ecclesiastes has been in this very intentional search to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life, and he has looked across the gamut of experience, and now he comes to grapple with death. He's going to give us a question to consider and a conclusion that pulls together several different aspects. So let's jump into the midst of that. Um, if you were to leave here and go up into the mountains, let's see, my directions are going northeast, right? Up towards Riosa, New Mexico, a town that I'm very familiar with, having grown up in Odessa. That was one of those getaway places from that side of the mountains. But if you head that direction, you'll find that there is one peak that looms above the others. It it dominates the landscape, if you will, of that part of the mountain range, Sierra Blanca. It is the one that no matter which direction you are approaching Riodosa in that area, you find that it has a way of just kind of marking the landscape. It's there and all the rest of the peaks that are around that pale in comparison. While you're on that particular mountain, it may not seem like it's that high, until you get all the way up to the top near the ski area, maybe even get up on the ski lift and go to the top, and then you realize that you look down on some of those mountaintops that seem to be so high from other places. We say it dominates the landscape. That's the picture that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us here. 
He, he emphasizes twin landscape dominant features. And the first one is this one that says life is temporal. Life is temporal. In other words, as we find it says, he says this in verse 2. Let's just go ahead and unpack what he does. In verse 2, he says, it is the same for all. Well, we might stop and say, well, what is the same for all? Because he hasn't really identified that yet in this particular passage. He jumps to verse 3, or we jump to verse 3, and he says, this is an evil in all that is done. And then he goes on to say the same event happens to all. And we might pause and say, what event are you talking about? The rest of verses 3 through 6 elaborate on that for us. And they give this reflections about what death is. Finally, we come to verse 10, and he nails it down for us, and he states his point. Whatever your hand finds to do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol, we should understand. Old Testament theology uh, is a developing theology when it comes to the afterlife. And so we find this word Sheol throughout the Old Testament, and it is that term that uh, Israelites use to talk about death and what happens to somebody after they die. It is the realm of the dead, the shadowy underworld, as many call it. It is a place of inertia. It is a place where once you die in this life, according to Old Testament thought, at least early Old Testament thought, it was the place that you just go and then you're just there and it's like life has totally stopped, but you still have some sense of being around. His conclusion is everybody dies. And when you die, you give up all you have and you're just kind of there. That's a dominant theme. As we come to this passage today especially, that's his conclusion. Everybody dies. And before we move to the second of these twin truths that loom above the landscape of our lives, we should stop for a moment and ask ourselves, how do we handle the truth of what he's just laid out? Everybody dies. We know that. That's not like that's a huge surprise for us. Oh, sure, we can talk about the exceptions that are there. Go to the Old Testament and Enoch and you know, we go to the New Testament and Jesus. And, uh, but his point is, as he looks at life around him, the constant is that this is a closed system. Nobody gets out alive. Unless Jesus Christ comes back, then the strong uh, likelihood is that each one of us will die. One of the things that I used to do a lot when I lived in East Texas was uh, go out to some of these small cemeteries. East Texas is hilly and it's got trees everywhere and it rains all the time and I found myself going to some of these remote graveyards to do graveside services for people and families stretch back for generations there much like they do in El Paso probably a little more so there and so you can go to a family plot in the cemetery and find five or six generations of people that are buried right there. But one of the things that I used to do when I'd go to those really remote graveyards is go early enough to walk around and look at some of the headstones. You know what struck me from that? If you get one or two generations away from people who are buried there, nobody on the planet knows who those people were. You, you may be the most famous person sitting in this particular room, 
And you may even be famous enough to make headlines and make newspapers and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. But sooner or later, unless you're one of the very few in the overall human experience, people will forget who you were. That's, I, I know you're so glad you came here today. There's such an uplifting message. <laughs> but that's his point. He looks around and he recognizes that people live and they make an impact or they don't make an impact and they go through their own chase, but looming over that is always the shadow of death. The question for us becomes then, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to that truth? Some of us could easily become fatalistic in the whole thing, and so we default. (laughs) We, We find this, by the way, in our media and in our movies and our entertainment industry. Some of us become so fatalistic, us being people in general, we get so fatalistic about this idea that we're going to die sooner or later that we embody death as the specter who wears long flowing black robes. You can't see his face and he carries this huge scythe and he's coming to get you. Isn't that an interesting thing how we lock in on that. Sometimes if we just pause and look at the society around us, we find that we expose our own problems in thinking. So you can be so aware that death is coming for you that you decide not to live anymore. I'm not talking about taking your own life. I'm talking about just realizing that I'm just not going to put the effort in anymore because, I mean, after all, I'm just going to die anyway. The writer of Ecclesiastes would argue against that, as we'll see at the end of this message. Some of us take the other extreme. Because death looms on the landscape of our lives, we decide we're going to be hedonistic about it all. And so we say, live it up. A few years ago in the, uh, in the verbiage of our younger set of people, and I even saw something on TV last night to this effect, uh, we adopted this whole approach here that's called YOLO. It stands for you only live once, and the implication is, live it up. Well, we don't have to look too far to see how that goes. I would just push you back to Aesop's fables and the ant and the grasshopper. And if you don't remember what that is, then go look it up, Google it later, and be reminded that you can live it up so much, and you can only live once so long that you find that life passed you by while you were living it up. We can't get away from the reality that death is one of those dominant landscape pieces of our lives. And all of us conduct the chase of our lives in the shadow of death, and it pushes us then to existential kind of questions. And so that is, if death is so certain and this is a closed system and nobody gets out alive, well then, what do we do with that? That is the issue. That is the question For the writer of Ecclesiastes, as he comes to this, he acknowledges that we all will die. And so what do we do with life? That pushes me back to Stephen Hawking for a moment. If you don't know much about his life, you should probably go check it out a little bit. He was a noteworthy figure in our culture and in our society during our generation. He was a brainiac in my terminology, but he was very confused about some things. Here's what he said. This is a quote. 
I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. <laughs> so I would say he's wrong. And I would say that there are those in our world today who would follow his lead on that and argue, uh, from, as he did, from the point of atheism that leads us to a point that says there's nothing out there. And so after we die, we just die. There is nothing left for us. And I would say to them they probably should make themselves familiar with what the preacher has to say in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just give you another quote from him to show you what I mean by that. He says, Stephen Hawking, also said, never give up work. Work gives you meaning and purpose, and life is empty without it. And we know from 11 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes that the writer says, no, you're wrong about that. I tried work, he says. I tried to pour myself into a life full of toil. And the conclusion of the writer of Ecclesiastes is it's just empty. It's just empty. It's vapor. There's nothing there. Stephen Hawking should have listened to the preacher, as it turns out. And if he wasn't going to listen to the preacher, then he probably really should have listened to what the writer of Hebrews says, because in Hebrews 9.27, we have this phrase. Well, let me just read the thing directly for you. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes the judgment. So I'm going to die. What then? And Scripture says that we give an account for our life. We give an account to God for the way we handled the life that he gave us. And most importantly, we give an account to God for what we did with the truth of his son, Jesus Christ. I saw a meme that relates to Stephen Hawking this week where he sat in his wheelchair at the gates of heaven, shaking his head going, I didn't know. Death is certain. That shadow is the shadow in which we all conduct our own chase for meaning and fulfillment in life. And it argues for responsible living with the truth. That pushes me to the second of these twin landscape features. The first one is life is temporal. The second one is you are not in control. <laughs> I know this is a shock to many of us because we have really worked hard to see to it that we are in control of our little part of the universe. But the writer of Ecclesiastes argues otherwise. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. And what you will find is he says, you don't have any control. Death comes sometimes unexpectedly. We know that. I mean, after all, all you really have to do is keep an eye on the news reports of our day to realize that we don't have any control over when we finish this life. I understand that some of us could take that in our own hands, but his point is that when you really think you have everything under control, you should look at how people die. On my phone, I have an app that gives me up-to-date reports from one of the news organizations here in the city of El Paso. And one of the things that is consistent about the updates that they push out to my phone and to yours, if you have that app, is that somebody died unexpectedly again. Just this week, we saw 
within the last 24 hours or so. Someone in a car crash loses their life. Writer of Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, the writer of Ecclesiastes acknowledges that. You don't have any control over that. If you think you do, you could go to that news story came out of Florida this week of a group of people who were just on their way to work or on their way somewhere and parked at a light and the bridge collapses on them and just like that, their life is over. We don't have control over the length of our life. Most notably in that that shakes us maybe more deeply here is the reports out of theater where a group of our soldiers perished this week in a helicopter crash. We don't control the times. We're alive one moment and gone the next. It reminds us that we're not in control. So, for those of you who understand the reference, it's almost as if the writer of Ecclesiastes has become Debbie Downer now. Fortunately, he doesn't leave us with those two truths that just cast a shadow across our lives. Look at what he says as we come to the end of this. The conclusion that he gives us is not really seize the day, but it seems to be sort of like that. This, this hits at us. This is verses 11 and 12, excuse me, 7 through 10 especially. But let me pause for a moment. And let me make sure that I'm setting the table the way that it needs to be set. One of the realities in our day is that we live at warp speed. Those of you who are Star Trek fans understand warp, feet, uh, warp speed and maybe Star Wars fans and all of that, but it's that point of reference where we live so fast that we outpace everything around us. The reality for us is that our lives are patterned that way. We live quickly. We live from one event to the next. And so from the moment that you wake up in the morning and you flip that smartphone on and it reminds you of what you have to do next, kids have to get someplace, you have to get to work, everything's going fast. One of the reasons that the fast food industry is so prolific in our society is because we live on the run. We don't even have time to stop and eat. So our cars have become some of our best dining room experiences of our lives. My wife's been gone. I'm going down tomorrow. My daughter will have a baby tomorrow. I'm going to grab my wife and I'm going to drag her home. Somebody, y'all have been very good to feed me while she's been gone. And uh, some people said, are you eating? I said, sure, that's why they make Burger Kings. It's for husbands whose wives have gone out of town. But I want to stop for a moment, and I want you to grab this truth. If we don't slow down, we will get to death without ever having lived. Don't miss that. The society that we live in emphasizes fast living. But we can live so quickly that we get to the end of life and look backwards and have very little to show for it. So he gives us four things. I'm going to fly through these pretty quickly because we're just about out of time, but I want you to get these four things because they become homework for you. I don't want to end a sermon like this with just, okay, you're just going to die, so just go home and enjoy the fact that you're going to die. I don't want to do that, right? I don't think the preacher wanted to do that. He just let the truth of it just amplify out there for us, but then he turns and he says in the midst of this, here's the first thing, four positive conclusions that you can take from this as death and the shadow of death looms over you. Here's the first one, have a party. 
This is verse 7. He says, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine. Excuse me, tea. <clears throat> I know where I am. With a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. That's a, that's a problematic phrase there. And I'm not going to unpack that here to, today. But I do, you remember the guy a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the guy who was dancing in the toll booth? Have a party with your life. Make your life count. Enjoy the life that you have. That's verse 7. So let me just pause there and come back to that whole uh, eating thing. You want, a, you want a good test on how fast you're living, how much you're enjoying life? How long has it been since you sat down and savored a meal? I mean sat down and ate slowly. Take a bite. Taco Bell. No. Enjoy your food. We don't do that much because we've got to get to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. He says, have a party. Slow down. Enjoy. And let the meal part of your life be the reminder Okay, I, I need to savor this. Many of us here are old enough that our children are gone from home and they're not here. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go deal with my mom some this week, but also have to, I'm the key babysitter for my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. Oh, it's on now. <laughs> but I'm going to sit with him and I'm going to eat and I'm going to enjoy the opportunity to be with him. That gets me kind of to some of the next stuff here. Let me give you the second one very quickly. You need to get comfortable. We understand this. This is verse 8. We understand this out here in the arid west, much like the area around Jerusalem where it's very dry and the sun can be very brutal. So he says in verse 8, let your garments be white, reflects back the heat instead of something dark that holds it in. And then he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. They didn't have lotion like we do. And so lotion, excuse me, oil and wearing white is a picture of them to get comfortable in it. The life that you have is all that you have, no matter where you are. So hear me carefully. This is a dirty word in our society. So I'm going to warn you up front. Here's what I think he says, rest and relax and be comfortable. We forget these things because we're too busy rushing through life. You ever stop to think about what this warp speed lifestyle we're dragging our kids through is going to do to our kids? I'm no sociologist, but if I was, I would commission a study that says, let's track a group of kids who live in this deal where they're in the car first thing in the morning, go to school, go from there directly to soccer practice or dance practice or baseball practice or whatever. And from there, they go directly to grab something to eat on their way home. They get home, they do their homework, and then they go to bed. And then they repeat that every day, every day, every day. I wonder what that's going to do to them when they're 40 years old and think that's normal living. He says, rest, relax. That gets us to verse 9, the third one, and that is to enjoy your family. Scholars are a little bit divided over what he means by enjoy the wife whom you love because some say the word there also means woman that you love. And so let me just see, tell you what I think he's talking about. I think what he's saying is in that fundamental part of how we're created, which is for relationship, enjoy the relationships of your life, especially the family relationship. 
enjoy those things because death is certain to come. One of the things that we go chasing in life more than any other is relationships that matter. So if you're in one, make it work. Settle into it and enjoy your spouse and your family. The last one pulls all these together. I used to have a coach. Actually, I had lots of coaches who used to say this. If you're a coach out there, I, I, you know, I love you and I appreciate what you do, but I want you to hear me. You know, when a coach said to me, I want you to give 110%, the logical part of my head said, that's impossible. Now, I never said that with my mouth because I had no coaches. It's impossible to give 110%. The reason we say that often is a way of coming around it to say, give everything that you have. And the reality is most of us as high school athletes had a lot more to give than what we were giving. So I understand what they meant by that, but here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, apply yourself to living. Verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. So if you're going to be a golfer, be a good golfer. If you're going to be a person, apply yourself to the task. Four things that he says, these will help you through as you work through the shadow of death, which pushes me back to Psalm 23 as we close. I'm glad that the writer of Psalm 23 didn't stop with talking about the valley of the shadow of death. You realize that the point of the psalm is that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, all of us are doing that every day of our lives. We're chasing in the shadow. But the writer of Psalm 23 has more to say to that for us because, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Because, and now he turns and he talks directly to God because you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. The good news for those of us who are chasing in the shadow of life, is that God, the one who gives life, says to us, let me help you live, and death won't be a problem for you. How is it for you today? Chasing in the shadow, does death scare you? Put your hand in that of the great shepherd who says, I'll walk with you through this, I will take you through this, if you let me help you live, death won't be a problem. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me ask you to personalize this message. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, death is not your friend, I promise you. But if you know Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with him where you have trusted him to be your Savior, to take the penalty of sin and to give life that only he can give, if you trust him in that, Death is not your enemy. How is it for you walking today through the shadow, chasing through the shadow? Do you know Jesus Christ? Father, in this time that we have now, we ask that you would drill into us the truth of that message. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ and hasn't experienced the life that only you can give, we pray that your spirit even now would push in to them and help them see their need for you and respond appropriately. Many of us are tired of chasing. Many of us look to death as that opportunity for us to get to real life. Help us to walk with you through the life that we have to make the most of what you've given us, 
with that day approaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You come.